0: our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com wondersuite. That's bluehost.com wondersuite.
1: Hey, Rockheads. I've got a couple of great offers for you before we get started today. If you couldn't make it to London this year for NSBCon, the very first conference all about end service bus, I got some great news. NSBCon is coming to New York City September 29th and 30th. That's right, two full days of sessions on distributed systems development from top speakers like Udi Dahan, Oren Eni Ted Neward, and .NET Rocks is going to be there too. And .NET Rocks listeners who register before July 31st, can get two days of video from Udi Dahan's course, free. Now, these videos, normally priced at over $1,000, will teach you about messaging patterns, where and when to use buses and brokers, and the right way to go about service-oriented architecture. But you can only get these videos for free if you register before July 31st. So join me and Richard at NSBCon and take your development skills to a whole new level. Go to nsbconnyc.com and register today. Now, get this. Remember when I mentioned that conference called Code on the Beach? Well, that same group is hosting a conference on a cruise ship. Code on the Sea is a five-day cruise from Jacksonville, Florida to the Bahamas, stopping in Nassau and Half Moon Cay from February 28th to March 5th, next year, 2015. Sessions are held on sea days, giving you and your family plenty of time to enjoy the ship, explore the Bahamas through exciting excursions, and soak in the warm weather in early March. Speakers will include Eric Meyer, Michael Feathers, and Greg Young. And .NET Rocks listeners can enjoy a $150 discount with a coupon DOTNETROCKS. Check out Code on the Sea at www.codeonthesea.com.
2: .NET Rocks episode 1011 with guest Daniel Simmons recorded Monday July 14th 2014
1: thanks very much welcome back to .NET Rocks we got a great show coming up for you I'm here Richard's here Dan Simmons
2: is here all right can you feel it Richard I can feel it. I was just reading about how in 1860 in London, mail was delivered 10 times a day. Speaking of non sequiturs, how's your mother? (laughs) I was just thinking,
1: that's a lot of spam for 1860. Yeah, that's true. You don't think of spam in that regard. (laughs) 10 times a day. Good Lord. Hey, uh, in honor of Dan and the topic today, I have a kind of a a scary... uh, Better know framework. I love it. Well, I don't know if it's scary, but it's the antidote to scary. Go ahead. Scare me. All right. All right, buddy. What do you got? So, if you go to tinyurl.com slash safe wallet, one word, of course. Nice. This is a Buxton RFID identity safe wallet prevent electric credit card scan theft. What is electronic credit card scan theft, you say? Just Google Bing it. (laughs) Basically, people are taking the same scanners that they use in, you know, stores to scan your card when you hold it up. And they're just buying amplifiers with batteries, walk around with a briefcase or, you know, some sort of bag over their shoulder. And from 25 feet away, they can read your credit cards through. You know, that are sitting in your wallet, in your pocket,
2: or in your pocketbook. If they're RFID cards.
1: Yeah, if they have a chip. That's a good point. They have to have a chip. So, you know, like Europe has cards with
2: uh, chips. We're just beginning to get them here in the States. Yeah, there's a the difference between chip and RFID, too. True. You know, it depends. The, the, the RFID thing is really interesting because it's in passport, new passports now, too. Right. So, if you if you
1: have any of these or have any of these concerns... You can also just wrap your cards or your wallet in foil or get yep. an aluminum wallet to prevent it. But, uh, if you want something with a little more style, you know, um, tucking, tucking, uh, aluminum foil in both sides of your wallet is also a good idea, but it just,
2: you just got to make sure there's nothing on the outside of it. I got to tell you the whole aluminum foil thing. I've been prepping the, the fusion power. Geek out for yeah. the ne- in the next couple of months. Mm-hmm. And so I, I figured I had to dive into cold fusion. Just had to. Oh, yeah. And every so often I go upstairs and go, oh, I've been spending too much time with guys with aluminum foil on their head. It's freaking me out. That's great. Yeah. We got to talk about that Italian guy, the crazy guy who's so got so many crazy people in the cold fusion space. There's some thing there, but yeah. not the guy with the foil on his head. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's enough from me. Who's talking to us, Richard? I grabbed a comment on show 999, the one we did with Mr. Forte when we talked about wearables. Right. And Barrett Blake gave this great comment. He says, it's not quite enterprise, but it seems to me that a perfect use for Google Glass in the workplace would be in the warehouse slash distribution center model. Combined with RFID tags, Glass and similar tech could lead workers and forklift drivers right to where a product or pallet they are looking for is and then direct them exactly to where it should go, Mm. there could be a potentially huge improvement in efficiency there. You know, funny you should say that, Barrett, because I think they're doing that except they eliminated the guy and now use robots to move the stuff around, (laughs) except that the people are still in the warehouse. It's just they actually pack the boxes, but the items are delivered right to them, Mm -hmm. which is interesting rather than having them walk around. But I'm with you. As far as retail goes, because here's where the story really gets interesting, I have to disagree completely. Remember, we were talking about using Google Glass in retail to sort of facilitate better retail conversations? Right. Let me tell you how much Barrett dislikes retail. Retailers already know far too much about me just from the credit cards and membership cards. I don't want them to recognize me and think they will know what I'm going to order or buy. My experience with targeted ads and products is pushing me to buy things is always wrong. For example, browse one or two websites about web hosting, and in the next three weeks, every ad on YouTube is about web hosting. Mm. Read a news article about candy, and suddenly Amazon is pushing candy products when I log in for the next week or two. Do a search on inkjet cartridges, and suddenly every ad is for Staples or HP Printer Ink. Yeah. Advertisers need to get a clue. I've already moved on. I'm already something else. Right. That was what I was interested in last week, not this week. They need to spend far less effort on targeting ads and far more emphasis on the actual customer service. Mm. So your glass tells you who I am when I walk in. That's not going to be service. Retailers won't use that to improve customer service. Retailers will use that to push products on me based on previous purchases. Yep. And guess what? Just because I bought a hard drive last week doesn't mean I want to buy a graphics card this week. Or a hard drive. Yeah. (laughs) Just because I ordered a quarter pounder last time doesn't mean I want it this time, but that's exactly where retailers will take that tech couple of things in my mind. Uh First off, yeah, we have a terrible problem where I think what I'm going to have to start doing is sending back products I've bought saying, you kept sending me ads on this and I can't take it anymore so you don't get my money. Because <laughs> there needs to be a disincentive to keep on bombing me over something I bought. So the fact that you would lose sales because your targeted marketing isn't smart enough, I'm all over that.
1: It's like but Doc I- Norton says, it's a lagging indicator.
2: Yeah. But I don't, I'm not so bitter here, Barrett, per se. I think there is ability to use Google Glass well. It's just a question of whether or not retailers will be smart enough to do it. So, you know, that's going to be the challenge there. But I, am not as pessimistic as you are, but that's not going to stop me from sending you a .NET Rocks mug. So a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NETRocks.com or with any of our mobile apps. We've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, Windows 8. Yeah. And that brings us to Danny
1: Simmons. Danny is the CTO of a small Seattle based startup, which recently released the world's first off the shelf RFID accounting system for small businesses. Prior to this venture, he worked on various software pursuits, including founding an early ISP and spending nearly 15 years on various development teams at Microsoft, where he's probably best known for the time he spent jousting with the N Hibernate Mafia. <laughs> on behalf of the Entity Framework. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that your uh, your term, the N-Hybrid 8 Mafia, has now made it into Danny Simmons' official bio, Richard. That's, I love it. Pretty awesome.
3: Welcome, Danny. Well, thank you. It's good to be back.
1: Yeah, it's good to have you back. Totally different thing now you're on to.
3: Yeah, you know, I, uh, I had a great time doing a bunch of different things at Microsoft, but... Uh, it was time to do something new and uh and this has been a a very interesting new project, but with a lot of the same old things behind it, I'm using c sharp and dot net and entity framework and w c. f and you know all the pieces that i right. and I and a uh, Raheen
2: still banging on a table <laughs> 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 no
1: comment i guess so. <laughs> That's great. So um, what do you think of what we've been talking about here, just in the security space with RFID? It seems to be the Wild West. Is there any sort of thing that you guys are doing to prevent this kind of uh, theft from
3: happening? Well, you know, aside from wearing the uh, stylish foil hats, <laughs> no, that's not really our, uh, our piece of the pie. Mm-hmm. You know, um, RFID and especially uh, sort of the related technology NFC – which is um, used more, I think, in the payment space. Um, And that's near-field what? Near-field communication. Communication, yeah. Um, uh, You know, they cover a whole wide range of different kinds of applications, and and payment is one of them. That's not really where we're focused. We've focused a lot more on scenarios that are uh, related to inventory, so more like these uh, warehousing kinds of scenarios where – you want to direct someone to where the product is, or more importantly, you want to keep track of counts of the stuff you have in inventory in real time, mm-hmm. uh, whether that's in a warehousing or in a retail or, or but if somebody uh, wanted kind of to
1: throw a monkey wrench in your system. Couldn't they walk around with some RFID readers or taggers or whatever, or tags and, and really make a mess of things?
3: Well, um, so there's, there's two kinds of uh, ways to look at it. You can be writing tags or you can be reading tags. Mm-hmm. And um, most of the applications we do are ones where you would pre-write tags or even buy pre-serialized tags that are locked down. And um, they're read-only and so somebody walking around, they could learn what you have in inventory, maybe, if they could get physically close enough. I got it. But, but they can't actually screw up your counts.
1: And if they had a cross-reference for those numbers into actual products, because they are just numbers, right?
3: That's exactly right. Um, and, you know, there are two kinds of uh, information commonly on tags. One of them is just a, essentially a GUID, mm-hmm. and the other one is you can put, a, like, a product code, uh, kind of like a UPC uh, barcode, except they have a, a standard for RFID, um, well, or semi-standard. Uh, but uh, for a lot of the applications, it's not really terribly interesting to have the even the product code. Just having the unique ID, essentially a computer-readable serial number, um, and then it's relevant with regard to my product database. Somebody else reading that data doesn't really tell them anything.
1: Sure. So it's not so much of a problem in an inventory system, especially in a closed warehouse environment.
3: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and then there are these other kinds of scenarios like where people have RFID tags on uh, uh, you know, wrist tags that let them into uh, parks or you know, different things like that. Mm. And again, it's just kind of a read-only kind of information. It's not like you're using payment there. But
1: in that case, you know, this is the same kind of thing for identification purposes and authorization purposes. That's the kind of thing that, that can be scammed. Somebody could read that tag and then get an, uh, get another tag that essentially mimics it. And this is what people were doing at the Prius a long time ago. Remember this? You could, cause the Prius was one of the first cars that had, uh, RFID to, uh, you know, key fobs or whatever. Right. And somebody who could walk around with a, with a laptop, essentially reading the RFID tag and then get an emitter to emit that, you know, or, or sort of spoof it so they could unlock your car.
3: Right. And it, it is a, a kind of concern. I think the, um, the big question is how much money, how much, um, motivation is there behind somebody doing that kind of spoofing or sure. Sure, stealing my car might be interesting. Um, getting into the water park, (laughs) maybe not worth the effort. Yeah, right. (laughs) Sure.
2: But how much data can you put into an RFID tag realistically?
3: Well, you know, um, there are a whole bunch of different kinds of standards. Most of them, you know, you can put up to like 4 or 8K, so it's not a lot of data. And and I would suspect, uh, certainly in the kinds of applications we primarily do, you don't even typically do nearly that much. Like I say, it's essentially you put a GUID on it. Um, it's, it's amazing the number of applications you get just from, hey, this physical object, I can tell what it is and where it's present. Right. Um, and no other data is needed aside from that unique identification.
1: Okay, so let's talk about your product now. So this is uh, something that integrates with QuickBooks? Is it, is it, sort of, it sounds like a disruptive technology to me.
3: Well, you know, um, it's definitely been true for some time that big businesses have made lots of improvements to their bottom line with using RFID technology. But essentially, all of the RFID kinds of accounting and inventory applications were custom applications that somebody had to build from scratch mm. and do a, a super expensive kind of deployment and just completely out of the reach of small businesses. Yeah. And so essentially our idea was to look at the common adoption curve you see for new technologies where it goes from these custom solutions for big businesses and then slowly makes its way down market to the the very large number of smaller businesses who need something that is focused, easy to deploy and really gets kind of the 80 to 90% benefit without needing all of this custom capability. Um, and RFID is just really ripe for that transition. The hardware has become less expensive. That the there's more standardization, so you can get t- tags from different manufacturers and readers and antennas from other manufacturers, and they all interoperate. Um, so it's really easy to deploy something off the shelf. And um, so we said, you know, the number one leader in small business accounting is QuickBooks. Um, we should just make it easy to take QuickBooks add some software, add some off-the-shelf hardware, and get a lot of that kind of inventory benefit uh, in a small business. And uh, so our product, uh, the company name is PassTrack. We're just kind of rolling out. We have some uh, in deployment now, some early adopters, and we're kind of rolling out to to more people, Uh, is one where, you can extend the built-in capabilities of QuickBooks for inventory management, which is largely just around maintaining counts of types of items mm. to a system that tracks the individual items. You put tags on items that, um, that you need to keep more track of, and then you can get automated counts. You can get automated, you know, like if you're in a small manufacturing system, you put a tag on something when you're done manufacturing it, and as it walks off the floor, the accounting system detects that and automatically does a build and adds into your inventory the new product and takes out of your inventory the parts that were needed to build it. Mm. Um, or if you're in a retail kind of situation, you can uh, you know, scan things as they're coming in at the loading dock into your inventory, and then you can scan them as they're going out with sales, and your inventory counts are maintained. And uh, occasionally, you can just walk around the floor and scan and know what you have out on the floor in an automated fashion with a lot of accuracy. Yeah. Of those kinds of scenarios.
2: What's the price tag for RFID tags these days? Well,
3: you know, the, the tags have been coming down a lot in price. One of the things that is still interesting about this is that there are, there's a lot of different kinds of physics involved depending upon what kind of characteristics you need for the tag, how close you want to be when you read it is the thing that you're putting it next to made out of metal or not. Mm, Right. Um, And so uh, there are some tags that you can commonly use in scenarios where you don't have uh, metal directly that you're applying to. Um, And, you know, so if you're putting it on a box or something like that, and if you don't have to worry about running it through a washing machine or something, you know, if it's just a typical retail kind of scenario um, you can get tags down to you know uh 10 20 cents a piece Mm -hmm. if you buy them in volume um but if you start needing the more complicated kinds of tag scenarios like you know we have a one customer we work with that does uh firefighting equipment and they have the, the uh cylinders that uh store the uh breathable gases and they they looked at putting tags directly on the cylinders, but to get tags that would read well when they're actually glued onto the side of the cylinder starts to get fairly expensive.
1: Is that because of the arc or is it because of the metal?
3: It's because of the metal. Yeah. So, you know, uh, the tag itself is just, uh, you know, a little antenna essentially with a little bit of electronics and it's getting its power from the signal. It doesn't have a battery or anything in it. Um, and the issue is that your antenna sends out a signal and then needs to get a signal back, and, and you get interference from the metal right nearby.
1: I imagine a problem then, Dan, is if you're one of these retailers that has both metal objects and non-metal objects, the non-metal objects being ones you can buy the cheaper tags for, and you have to buy your tags in, from two different sources or two different uh, styles, you might run the risk of uh, duplicating numbers. Is there a way what? that you can say, I want to buy this many tags with the range of this to that, and they program them for you before they ship them?
3: Well, you have, you have a couple options. One of them is that you can have tags that come pre-serialized, and typically it's like a GUID. They have a, a, a number that is really globally unique, and that's not an issue. Okay. The second way you can do it is uh, almost all of these tags are writable, and you can write them once and then lock them so they can never be written again. Hmm and so then you could serialize your own numbers into them
1: if you were so, that ambitious yeah
3: yeah it, it it's not terribly difficult um b- but oftentimes the simple answer is just buy tags that are pre-serialized right um and then it, then that's just not a question okay. we found actually that for this particular um customer that's working with the cylinders and has the the need of tags near metal just a little bit of space was enough and so rather than attaching a tag permanently we can put a tag on a little dangly uh, with a you know, plastic cord to to affix it, mm. and uh, and that's fine for all of their warehousing needs. And uh, and then it, it you know cheap tags read just fine as long as they're not directly up against the metal. Um. So so by and large, we're finding for a lot of people the tag prices are coming down quite a bit, and you can use the the basic tags that looks a lot like just a sticker. Yeah. Um, you can hardly even tell it from a label, and oftentimes you'll print maybe a barcode or a, or some text label on the outside of the tag, uh, and then you can just slap it on a box or something like that.
2: Now, most of the time when you think about RFID tags, the readers are very close range, just a couple of feet. If I've got an inventory space, and you're really only reading one tag at a time, so 10,000 items in a storage space, how do you handle that many tags? Like, How long does it take to read them all?
3: Well, you know, there there are a couple of different ways. One of the systems that uh, – one of the things that some of the really high-end systems do is what they call smart shelf uh, technology, and they'll put a series of readers almost like you would bathe uh, a big space with uh, Wi-Fi uh, kind of signal. Uh, you know, you put a, a series of readers spread around your warehouse, and they do a read, you know, uh, periodically – and then the system just kind of keeps track of everything that they can see. But we find that actually for a great many scenarios, particularly for smaller businesses, it's much more realistic and, and, and works uh, very well to, to do either individual scans or threshold scans. So, you know, if you have a warehouse that only has a couple entrances, you can put a reader at the entrance and it can scan things as they go by. Right. Uh, and that's sufficient. Um, you put a, a reader at your loading dock or even just in the room where you do receiving. If you're a really small business, um, which a great many are, you just say, fine, what I do is I, I take, my, uh, when I actually receive, I open the box and, and I just scan stuff right past a reader as I was gonna have to go verify that I got what I ordered and put some totals into my accounting system anyways. I can just scan. Probably I'm not scanning things that ha- already have tags. I'm probably putting tags on as I scan them, slap on a tag, scan it. Um, and then after that, all of the work within my business is fully tracked. The the big boys, like, you know, the, the classic case is Walmart uh, came out with this thing several years back where they said everybody in their supply chain has to pre-tag things before they send it to them. Right, And they do their receiving, and they find out what it is because it already has a tag on it. But for a great many businesses... You know, it's much more interesting to say, let's just look at how do we automate our own internal processes.
2: Well, I've got to think as stuff is coming in. If you're not Walmart and convinced all your suppliers to pre-tag everything, you've got to take the time to tag each thing as it comes in, and then scan that. Look, you know, load the associated data with it, so that you eventually your inventory is all populated. Like that initial population is probably going to be time-consuming.
3: Yeah it it does take uh, it does take some time. You know, we spent a lot of time in the software trying to, to make it so that uh, it's at least as efficient as what you maybe are doing already where you have to do hand entry to put in counts. Right. You know, you, you select the item type and then you just go, oh, I got five of them, scan, 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 scan. My count is five and, and that's great. And where you really get a lot of the benefits are then the processes after that. You know, I want to uh, make sure that I don't have people... Uh, doing inventory shrinkage and walking off the floor with stuff because they know that I'm keeping track of the accounts. Most of that comes from employees anyways, right um, and And that problem just kind of gets uh, almost solved according to a lot of the studies. Um, or uh, oftentimes especially in small manufacturing kind of businesses where you want to keep track of the uh, the stuff as it goes through your processes. Um, you know i I send this out to someone to get painted then I bring it back in, I do some uh, further work on it, I can document all of those steps and keep track as it goes through, and automatically make the accounting uh, adjustments, taking parts out of inventory, adding finished products back into inventory.
2: Yeah, I think, you know, and I get to think there's all kinds of cases like the metal problem or having a bunch of tags together where it's not going to work perfectly every time, but if you can get the 80% case, it's going to save a lot of effort.
3: Yeah, that's true. Uh, We also find that you know, you typically don't want to, it's not realistic, and you don't even really want to put a tag on every single thing you might possibly have in inventory. Right. You might have, you know, nuts and bolts and stuff, and you're not going to tag them, No. but you have this one very valuable piece of the thing that you're manufacturing or the kinds of things that you're selling, and you definitely want to put tags on those. And so you can find a fairly simple balance between those. And and most accounting systems, people do those same things anyways. You know, they have small parts that they just expense, and they have other things that they actually keep track of, the, the value of the assets of that inventory.
2: It's sort of on a value basis, the more expensive stuff gets the tags?
3: Yes, exactly. Um, uh, you know, in, in the case of this uh, business that I was mentioning that, that works with firefighting equipment, you know, they have packs. And uh, the pack has a whole series of different parts, but at the end of the day, you typically sell a pack and a cylinder, and those are the things that they're looking at tagging. And the mask and the regulator and all these other little things—you know—we don't need to put tags on every one of those.
2: Right. But a, and I guess you know, why are they tracking them because they're valuable and they might get stolen, or do they need to know how often they were used? Like you start getting really creative when you now you're able to automatically track when stuff comes and goes.
3: Yes. So th- this particular business. Um, does a lot of work with used uh, firefighting equipment that then they right. refurbish. And so for them, they got a ton of value out of documenting the process of every step that the equipment goes through because it's a safety concern. Right. So they receive a pack in, they put a tag on it, as they do all the work, they keep track of everything that has happened to that pack to refurbish it, the testing. And then they can also, because we're tracking individuals, we added the ability to do attachments of photos and documents, um, and so then later, if they get a warranty call, they can say, "Oh yes, I know exactly the pack you're talking about. Here's everything we did. Here's the test results for when we verified that the cylinder was good. You know, all that kind of stuff."
2: So now it's like RFID tag as serial number.
3: Exactly. Mm. That's that's really you know the, the one of the key concepts that it is that it's just very difficult to keep track of individual items by serial number um, with many of the sort of small business accounting systems. And, and even just by hand, it's it's prohibitively expensive to figure out how to keep track of that. But with RFID tags, suddenly you get just enough automation that it doesn't add a lot, uh, you know, it doesn't add drag to your system to keep track of this much finer grain detail. And you can get process documentation and you can and you can start to learn other things like, oh, look, I can find out um, that this is the bottleneck step in my manufacturing process. Sure. Whereas before it was very difficult to learn that because you just didn't have any um, tracking of Mm. where things were spending their time.
2: Yeah, if you're working through, if you're dealing with work in progress, you end up having to routinely sample. becomes somebody's job to figure out where stuff is in an assembly line. You could really go nuts with RFID, not just for inventory, but for processes,
3: couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, there are there are lots of things, uh, lots of new kinds of applications that people are using it for. Um, uh, you know, inventory seems to be a real sweet spot in the accounting place. Uh, and so that's really where we went to focus initially. But even when you when you say inventory, we start thinking about all kinds of scenarios that, that maybe aren't immediately obvious, like, well, now maybe we want to talk about a, a bike shop or a ski shop that takes in uh, equipment from a customer, does repairs on that equipment, and then sells it back. Well, they don't typically put the things they get in from the customer into inventory. It's not like they're adding that to their balance sheet. Right, right. But they absolutely need to keep track of those things. And on some businesses, they get uh, they have a surprising amount of time spent dealing with the phone call from the customer that says, can you tell me the status of my item? Right. And that call usually goes to the salesperson who knows nothing about the actual status, who has to go then and bug the person in the back who's actually doing the work and interrupt them from what they're doing to find out what's going on. And if you can get to the point where you say, hey – the person in the back who's actually adding the value and doing the work but probably doesn't really like computers very much, Right. if they can get essentially automation of they just do their job and as things walk through the processes, um, the tags are read automatically and the, the sales guy up front, he just pulls it up on the screen and says, oh yeah, looks like that'll be done tomorrow. Mm. Or,
2: or it's on its self-service website so the customer himself can go look it up. It's just Capturing that data passively all the time just opens the door to reducing the friction on all that. Sure does.
3: Yes. And and this is, in, in retail, this is really the thing that people are doing to fight back against uh, the potential tyranny of Amazon. Right. Which is, hey, you know, if I can go to the website and realize that you have the thing, the guy down the road has the thing in stock right now that I want to buy, I'll just go down and buy it instead of going online and ordering it. That's Right. right.
1: Yeah, the immediacy then, is the is the feature there.
3: Exactly. If you can truly have real-time counts without adding the work of maintaining them by hand, then you can really get those benefits.
2: Yeah, and or that, the cost of forcing somebody to go check to see if they actually have it.
1: That's if you even have inventory. I mean, there's so many stores that have just enough inventory to handle what they f- perceive is the, you know, is the demand. Um so I I find more and more that retail stores are ah oh, we're we're out of that. Oh, we we just ran it. We just sold the last one. I'll have more in a couple of days. Or no, we don't have that now, but I could order it for you. Yeah, I could right. order it too, buddy. I got a phone. Yeah, Yeah.
3: And and I I think that is a, a it's a general dilemma that a lot of re- small business retail is going through. Yeah. And and the answer I think for many of them, the ones that are going to survive is going to be a, you get a little smarter. You figure out how to have more data, so you can figure out how to have the stuff in stock. Mm. And B, you provide more service. So yep. if somebody says, "Yeah, I'm willing to go to this local place." You know, when I I recently I've been getting into mountain biking with my son a lot, and uh, when I bought my mountain bike, I bought it from the shop down the road because for a year they'll do free tune-ups, and right. you know, whenever anything's wrong, they take care of me. Yep. And yeah, that's worth it to me. Sure is. Um, and, hey, if I can enable small businesses to have a little technology, you know, you don't need a lot right. to, to really change the equation a bit. And so that's really a big part of what got us excited about this business is how do we, how do we enable some of those people to, to make that transition.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Maybe that's why Bluehost has been recommended by WordPress.org since 2005. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. That's Bluehost.com Wondersuite.
2: Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring.
0: A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, Huh?
2: Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over a hundred casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes.
0: Chumbacasino.com. No purchase by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. Guess what time it is? Uh, it must be that happy time again.
1: You know it. It's time to change into my all-new aluminum foil pants. <laughs> is it that the one with the underwear on the outside? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's actually time to give away a experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but first... Let's talk about DevExpress Universal. Become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard – DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best, without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Keith Lemon. Congratulations, Keith. All right, Keith. Golf clap for you. Is that the clappers? That's the clapper. The clapper's back. <laughs> the clapper's back. I cleaned the studio. I found him. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> we have parties more often. <laughs> <laughs> so keith just won the d experience subscription from developer express that's a whole bunch of goodness in one box from dev express if you don't know what we're talking about right now go to dot click on the big get free stuff button answer a few questions and join the fan club we have thousands of members all over the world every show we give away great sponsor stuff like the D experience subscription in every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology that you pick. One lucky member of the dot rocks fan club gets to win that every year. We've done it two years now and uh, it's real. So it is. we like to ask our guest Danny, if you had five grand to spend on technology right now, besides a whole big box of RFID tags, what would you buy?
3: <laughs> you know, I, I've been thinking about that and, uh, I think if I had the money to spend, I would get involved in 3D printing and sort yeah. of this whole maker movement, you know, like a whole bunch of Arduino and Netduino boards and gadgets. That's I, I watch kind of a little bit from afar. Uh, I, I read blogs and things like that, and I never really have time to fully invest in it, but that tinkery thing. That is so awesome.
2: And there's so many possibilities now when you when you're willing to spend a little money, you know they, the, the the maker bot side of this they've got the price down <laughs> yeah. so low. I feel like they're almost too cheap. You know.
3: Well, you know, um, you can you can go get the off the shelf 3D printers, but I think the really fun thing is to build one. Oh, really? Um, you know, there are so many of these uh, just open source type hardware projects. Now, and, uh, you know, in the Seattle area where I live, there's this place called Metrics Create Space where they, like, every Tuesday night, people get together and build 3D printers. Wow. And you can start building things that do more than what you can get off the shelf. You know, build faster, have multiple leads, so you can do different colors of plastic at the same time, all that kind of stuff.
2: Well, especially the Da Vinci line of 3D printers, that, that was an all open source design, and they're under a thousand bucks. It's it's crazy, really. There, yeah. uh, there's
1: a yeah. I don't know if it's the Da Vinci ones, but there's some company that's got a Kickstarter going that wants to make a you know two hundred dollar 3D printer. They want to make something that is accessible to everybody. Ah, I, I don't, I don't see
3: it, why it couldn't happen if we can just get the the volumes up. The, it's not like the hardware involved is really that sophisticated.
2: Yeah, not um, anymore. Anyway, it's mm. gotten simpler and simpler. When you when I go and look at like five thousand dollar three D printers, stuff like the three D Systems ProJet, they're like those are big machines, and they are they they're doing using lasers to do uh, uh, epoxy resin hardening rather than doing the drip ABS plastic approach. I think just having the low end filled in and, and inexpensive like that just opens the door to the higher end will come down as well, and sophistication just keeps going up.
3: Yeah, I actually have a kind of a family member who works at a company in uh, Texas, kind of in the Austin area, that does 3D printing for all kinds of things, all the way up to like Bell helicopters, and mm. and I got to go tour their plant, and they have... You know, crazy machines. You know, they do 3D printing of metal with lasers hmm. and uh, all kinds of stuff. Is, is pretty pretty amazing. And yes, that stuff is hardcore.
2: Now, the other fun one that I've been looking at is RepRap, and RepRap is about building a 3D printer that makes 3D printers.
3: Yes. Oh man!
1: Oh my! god yes.
2: blowing my mind.
3: <laughs> uh, 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 they uh, if you if you read in in a lot of the stuff about these they talk about the idea of vitamins which are the little bits of parts you have to add that they can't actually build yet right but you can print large parts of the system
1: huh interesting dan you know one of the things that's interesting to me about this project is the believe it or not and it sounds mundane but the integration with quickbooks and now i know intuit has an api for dot net but how 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 is that integration is that was that easy for you
3: um, uh, I wish I could say yes. <laughs> it, uh, it, it can be somewhat painful. Okay. Um, at, at the basic level, getting some simple scenarios up and going with QuickBooks is pretty simple. They do have an API. You uh, At the end of the day, it's about sending XML back and forth on a com interface, and they have a .NET wrapper, or you can talk to the com interface and the XML directly. mm mm-hmm. um, in practice, it turns out that you know QuickBooks has been around a long time. They're on version 14 or 15 or something, and they've been doing semi backwards compatibility with this API for a long time. Mm. And uh, and it's not really the center of their business. which which means some days, you know, some years they think that's really important and they invest a bunch, and then other years they kind of back off for a while and then they come back around again. And uh, so some parts of the API work great, and some parts uh, we have to get creative. Mm.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. So they got legacy Um, syndrome in a big way.
3: Yeah. Uh, So, you know, it wasn't long before we discovered that we really needed to not use their .NET API. They're doing COM interop at a low level um all the time and the perf was just horrendous and so then we switched to writing directly their xml Um and uh then you you have to find the places where the documentation is just wrong and do the experimentation to figure out how it really works yeah. and you know all that kind of stuff but at this point you know we really invested in building a library uh we use T4 uh, under the covers to code gen things from a specification that we have developed that kind of mirrors their API so that we can have a nice programming experience on top of that. And most of the time, I don't worry about it too much. Only when we kind of get to a new area of the product, then I have to go yeah. research and build out my library again.
2: What about the APIs to the RFID hardware itself? Like, what? How do you collect that GUID data off the RFID tags?
3: Yeah, so that's something uh that's something I wanted to talk about because I think that's uh, that kind of is where it gets pragmatic if if people want to uh, pick up and do some of this kind of RFID stuff themselves. And I would say that there's actually two different classes of highly related things that I mentioned earlier: NFC and RFID. And yeah. the kind of applications we're doing most of them right now we're focused on RFID because. You can typically read the tags from farther away if you have the right kind of antenna and the right kind of tag, so you can enable more scenarios. Um, but the downside of RFID is that you have to buy a separate reader, and the readers are they're not horrendously expensive, but they're not super cheap. You know you right, can get right. USB readers for a few hundred dollars. Most of the readers are ones that you actually want to hook up to a network. They look kind of like uh, a wireless router, just a little box that you hook up to a network. Um, and they cost, you know, getting closer to $1,000 or more. Um, the NFC technology is very interesting because while it can only read things very uh, up close, you can... Um, most smartphones these days, if they're not iPhones, actually have NFC reading capability built into them. Um, How close is so, real close? Um, well, you know, the, the typical scenario is the uh, touch the two phones together to to transfer a picture or a contact. A lot of that uses NFC. So it really um,
1: has to be right on it.
3: It really has to be right on it. I mean, yes, the, the exact thing that Richard was talking about at the beginning of this uh, show, you could theoretically build hardware to boost up the signal and read something farther away but in practice the way people use it is it's almost like a barcode read uh and just more accurate and more data and you um you just kind of tap the thing um but the beauty of it is that you have you know my nokia uh lumia phone has nfc built in and uh you can look at tags are getting inexpensive enough and they're small enough. You could even look at putting both an RFID tag and an NFC tag on an item. And then that means that, uh, Hey, I might have a reader on the threshold to my warehouse, but I also might just pull out my phone as I'm walking around and just tap it up to something and bring up all the stats on the thing that I'm looking at. Right. Um, and uh, so, so at any rate, uh, the, point about these two different things is that you typically have to use a couple of different kinds of programming libraries to talk to NFC or to RFID. In the case of NFC, Windows 8 and Windows Phone 8 now have the Proximity API, which is used for other things as well. But one of the things it enables is NFC reads. And um, you you can uh, write an application that will run on a, a Lumia phone uh, or, or other NFC Windows Phone uh, NFC enabled Windows Phones or tablets, and just essentially subscribe to an event, and you get an event when the thing gets close enough that it sees a tag. Can't nice. get easier than that, can it? <laughs> yeah. but pretty straightforward. Yeah. In the case in the case of RFID, it's uh, it's more complicated. There's less standardization, um, and you know partly that's uh, reflecting where the where the industry is right now. A lot of the different hardware manufacturers, while they do have some standardization so you can read the same tags with different readers and you get that interoperability, they're all trying to sort of push the envelope and do the thing that makes them a little unique. They can read more tags faster or they can store extra data on the tags or those kinds of things. And so um, typically each manufacturer has their own SDK that... you have to program to you know. Impinge is one of the big ones. They're they're based out of Seattle. And they've got a com. They've got a whole set of different kinds of readers that all use one common API. You can talk to with the, the Impinge API, and they have typically good bindings for .NET as well as for unmanaged C. Uh, you know, and sometimes for Java. Um, then there are other companies like Thing Magic and Alien um, that make their own readers and they have their own APIs that uh, are designed to make it a little easier to use their unique advantages. But at the end of the day, for the core, I just want to read and get some ID off of a tag. They pretty much all come down to have to do some amount of configuration to set up the reader by sending some kind of message over a network, and then then you subscribe to an event. Uh, So... We have been working on sort of just like we build our library around QuickBooks, building sort of our RFID abstraction, and then we can start plugging in different kinds of readers. At the end of the day, the core capabilities are are pretty straightforward.
2: It's always scary to be dependent on a third-party API, isn't it, now that you're a third-party guy, Mr. Simmons? (laughs)
3: Uh, Yes, (laughs) Uh, it it is. Uh, But, you know... Hey, when you were when I was working at Microsoft, and the other party was some other team at Microsoft, it didn't feel that much different.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: That's funny. <laughs> They have their yeah. own ship schedule and uh, their own priorities, and things might come and change on you uh, the same as dependent on a third party. You remember when your so, code used to work? Yeah,
2: not so much. <laughs> <laughs>
3: So at the end of the day, you apply the same techniques, right? You make some abstraction, you gear yeah. up. When when they make a change, you just hopefully can change out your driver underneath and the rest of your code stays the same.
2: Well, what do these call patterns look like? Is it basically just initiate the device and then once it says okay, now you're just waiting for events to arrive?
3: Yeah, typically. I mean, oftentimes there's configuration. You put the device into a particular mode. Right. And And sometimes they'll have modes that are you know, more tuned to the smart shelf kind of scenario where they're actually going to try and store information in the device about the things that they're seeing so they don't have to round trip to you with every single tag. Right. They just kind of let you know when things change. Um, or uh, maybe you put it in a mode where it's, hey, I'm expecting that this is a relatively close range reader or it's on a threshold and I want to know every time you see something, most of the time you're not seeing something. Um, We did have to build some things into our software around throttling back because uh, many of these readers can read very, very rapidly. Right. And so if I'm walking through the threshold with a box, um, I might get a 1,000 reads on each one of the tags in the box during the time the person is walking by, and (laughs) and I want to throttle that back and turn that into one read. Right. Um, So, you know, there are some of those kinds of challenges. Uh, I think typically, you know, like with NFC, there's less of that because it's so close proximity.
2: So queuing sounds like a sort of key technology here to queue stuff up at the read point and possibly even further back that you pull it off the device and then you have it in a queue to be processed over time.
3: Yes. um, Yeah. In in our case, uh, you know, we find that because we're aiming at sort of a small business scenario, the total volume of data is typically not that large. And so um, we're doing the queuing kind of more at our reader abstraction layer and then just providing events rather than some kind of a, you know, true persistent queue or something like that. Um, but certainly if you were looking at, hey, I want to process, uh, you know, you even hear things about people having readers that read stuff off of trucks as they go by, yeah, um, and things like that, um, you know, and then you're reading a lot of tags in a very short amount of time. Then, yeah, absolutely, you need. But to also do that a lot that. of
2: duplicates. Like I gotta think the sort of deciding on a window of time to say now check all of this window of time for duplicates and get rid of them. That's not a small problem.
3: Yeah, um, you know, I, I I did spend some time investing in that. I have to be honest; it's been about a year since I was looking at that in our product, and and we just. uh it just works now, <laughs> but but as I remember, what what I was able to do is just simply have a a queue, and if I saw the same tag within a a timer window, then I would just throw it away. Right. Um. And so it wasn't it wasn't too bad. But you
2: want um, that code it, to run before you raise the event. You don't want the event to do duplication handling.
3: Right. Yes so so i I did it kind of upstream when I was catching the events, and then, in my abstraction, I would fire an event um after I had kind of done that throttling back.
2: Well, you um, wonder if the a p i itself wouldn't eat duplicates.
3: Well, and I think some of them do. Uh, you know, one of the things that's interesting is, like I say, there is this variation between the different manufacturers. And, and in fact, some of them even you can provide, you can write unmanaged code and upload it and actually run it on the reader to do some of your own custom logic there. Ooh, fancy. Um, and those kinds of things. In our case, we said, you know, we want to be able to support a lot of readers and we want to boil down what is the key functionality and then kind of abstract to something common and not really try and push the limit on those. And, and that really reflects this idea that we want to make a simple, off-the-shelf solution for small businesses. I think in larger business situations, people, will, you know, will they'll go evaluate and then they'll pick a hardware and then they want to push that hardware to the limit.
2: Yeah, and I would think from your perspective, too, especially with small businesses, it's kind of in your best interest to have a kit. Here, these tags with this reader, like, I... You, uh, there's got to be a yeah. value prop for you on how many different readers do you support.
3: Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. Um, we are kind of all about that that kind of how do we enable that kit scenario. At the same time, because of these physics kinds of questions, for some businesses, you want to be able to still have the flexibility to say, hey, um, I do have to do, you know, I'm putting tags on uh, uh, clothing items that I'm going to wash regularly because I'm keeping track of the uniforms at a hospital or something. Right. And uh, and so I need a special kind of reader and tag, um, whereas in some other businesses, you know, it's pretty straightforward and we can just say, yeah, here's the standard one. Um, so we're kind of trying to be a little flexible that way. Also, we want to be able to handle as the industry continues to uh, mature and prices go down, we want to be able to jump on and, and provide really uh, cost-effective solutions
2: very business-oriented decisions you're making here in terms of what customers you're actually going to get for the company.
3: Well, you know, um, part of our role is to be uh, helping out small businesses. And and oftentimes, one of the things that small businesses uh, encounter is that they have experts in their thing that they do, um, and they're not really experts in accounting. Right. And, uh, and so they pick up QuickBooks because it – Sort of boils down a lot of the decisions for them. And we're trying to do the same kind of thing. We want to boil down key decisions and give you a really good value proposition um, that kind of guides you through the process so that you don't have to, you know, pay an an accountant a bunch of money to figure out something custom for you. That's pretty awesome, Dan.
1: Is there anything else that we uh, should talk about before we wrap it up?
3: Um, I I think that's pretty much it. I mean, uh, I. I think I have found a lot of fun in, in working on this kind of project, and, and there are a lot of different applications, so I'd encourage people to go have a look. I'll just throw out one other little idea that's interesting that's very simple. If you have a Windows phone or an Android phone that has NFC, you can get tags and pre-code them with kind of off-the-shelf applications, and people do simple things like put a tag on their dashboard of their car and when they get in the car tap the phone to the tag and that turns on bluetooth if you want to have it off the rest of the time nice Um, or simple kinds of scenarios like that there are simple ways to get in and play with some of this and start to get a feel for the things you can do and uh and i love to see people doing all those kinds of crazy things because that just pushes all of this forward
2: so event-driven configuration of your phone is that a feature specific to windows phone
3: Um, I've, I've read some, uh, some blogs about people doing it with Windows phone. Um, it's pretty simple. You know, at the end of the day, you read a tag and it goes to a URL or something like that. Um, I assume that the same things can work with Android phones, but I don't have a lot of Android phone experience myself. Um, you know, I'm still a Microsofty at heart a little bit.
1: (laughs) Right. Yeah. I wondered how much the portable class libraries would, would help in this case. You know, um, you know I've definitely
3: read that there are some people who have, uh, uh, you know, some libraries that do abstraction between Android using Xamarin and Windows Phone and some of those kinds of things. And I think that's one of the places we're going to be going in the near future where we start trying to roll out. And also, I hear that uh, there are some cases for iPhones that add NFC ability to an iPhone as well. Yeah. So,
1: Well, there you virtually. go. Yeah. Awesome. Dan, thanks so much for talking to us. This is very interesting.
3: Well, I appreciate it. I, I enjoyed talking to you guys, and if uh, people want to uh, learn a little bit more about their product, they, you know, I think I sh- sent you a link. You can come check out Pastrack.com.
1: Yep. P-A-S-T-R-A-K.com. Check it out. Thanks, Danny. We'll talk to you later. All right. See ya. And we'll talk to you next time on Rocks.